Hey, I'm here with Tim Blute, who is the director of NGA Future. Your beautiful office is here in downtown Washington, D.C. It's great to be here. Tim, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming. I appreciate you coming over to our office and happy to talk to you today. Absolutely. So what's NGA Future? What's, what is it? Sure. So it is uh, the National Governors Association's first ever Office of Technology Policy. So the mission of the office is to connect governors and their senior staff with the entrepreneurs and innovators who are driving today's technology economy, and really to encourage a dialogue around all these emerging technologies that are coming online, coming to market right now, to help governors understand how they're gonna change the economy, how they're gonna change society, and how they could be applied within government to help improve the efficiency and effectiveness of state government. Yeah, no kidding, so that sounds like a great initiative. How long have you been around, and what what uh, what was the genesis, or how did you all decide to create this office? Sure, so the initiative's only about two and a half, maybe three weeks old at this point. <laughs> all right. Uh, but the dialogue's been ongoing for almost a year now, and uh, so for the last four years, I've directed NGA cybersecurity work through which I've had a great opportunity to spend a lot of time out in California, meeting with a lot of the tech companies who are at the forefront in that field. And one of the things that kept coming up more and more in those discussions is, wow, the amount of technology that the private sector can bring to bear in the cybersecurity realm, does it doesn't match what the public sector kind of either understands or can consume to bring to bring into the to bring into the fight in the cybersecurity realm. Sure. So started watching this and hearing these dialogues and also I mean you know this, you're based out there, you meet with some of these folks, even the ones who are in cybersecurity and you talk about autonomous vehicles, you talk about health tech or fintech, and it's just it's a whole different world than what you get in the public sector. I mean you have lunch with these folks and they're gonna cure cancer, do away with cash. <laughs> and we're all going to be in driverless cars <laughs> in the next five years. And then when you go have a conversation with the public sector and it's just, they said, in five years we're going to do all of that? Right. Wow. How does the regulatory environment catch up? How does yeah. society catch up? Well, it's a great I mean, I'm sure technology has always been ahead of the public sector. I mean, that's always going to yeah. be true. But you wonder, um, and I've been kind of around this game for a long time too, you know, having worked for a United States Senator in the early 90s and then, you know, city council in the 2000s and then worked for Governor Brown not long ago in California. Um, I, I just can't, I certainly can't think in my lifetime that technology has ever been this far ahead of, as you're pointing out, not only the uh, the awareness of technology and the appreciation for where innovation's going, but certainly how government actually functions yeah. today. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And across so many different sectors, right? It's mm -hmm. not just about, oh, how is the internet gonna change the way we communicate? It's now, it's gonna change, technology's gonna change the way we drive, the way we investigate crimes, the way we keep track of whether or not we're healthy, the way we educate ourselves and the future generations how we work, the way we work. And then you take it and think about all that and think, oh wow, how could actually government deploy it? So one of the examples that we were just talking in our office this morning is looking at these hurricanes that we've had, this yeah. terrible hurricane season. Um, there's a great article up at Harvard University about just IOT and the Internet of Things and wind sensors that they were able to use in Florida to really get a warning. And these technologies deployed away from Miami, but they were able to know right. and distribute that across crowdsourced maps. So people knew, oh, this is where we're getting our wind readings. The hurricane has shifted a little bit. This is technology that wind sensors isn't anything new, right? But yeah. connecting those wind sensors to the internet in a way that the average citizen can sit at home or on their mobile device and say, wow, this is coming right at me in a way that maybe the warning didn't say two hours. Boy, ago. I have to tell you, you know, as we're recording this, we were uh, we just got through these horrific uh, fires in Northern California, yeah. right in the Napa wine country. And um, I lived pretty close to that uh, and, and was talking and, and sadly have a number of friends and business colleagues who, who were impacted directly. People's homes, you know, that were burned down. I mean, terrible outcomes. And, and, you know, there's always a little bit of this, you know, immediate emotional reaction where people are very upset and they felt like the warnings were inadequate. The warnings were inadequate. And, you know, I don't, you know, you, you never know. But there's no question that I don't see 
a unifying application out there that to me is capturing all of the sort of data that's out there and applying it in ways that's broadly um, accessible and usable on the part of people that maybe uh, I just have to believe at the end of the day there could have been uh, a better system of getting people alerted to and aware of how fast that could be actually coming in their direction. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's probably a little too soon for the after action on the fires because yeah. we're, we're just sort of maybe, you know better than I, but I think we're, since we're just past the immediate danger right. and now we're trying to figure out what happened. But you, know, you, did, you did see this with the hurricanes where taking GIS data, taking citizens using social media to get information in where you had emergency operations uh, centers who traditionally would take 911 calls. Now they're monitoring Twitter, they're monitoring Facebook, they're looking at Instagram and Snapchat. Taking that, which is actual citizen calls for help or citizen notifications, you take that, you put that onto a GIS platform and then make that a crowdsourced map. So then when you take something like down in the Southeast, you know, you've got this concept of the, they call it the Cajun Navy, right? The citizens who go out and help actually rescue people. These are volunteers. Yeah. Well, now you can arm them with a map. So they're not just knocking on every door. They know, oh, we actually saw, a we got a report, a tweet that a house in this area has a problem. So we can focus our efforts there. It's like Waze, right? I mean, it's how exactly. Waze works. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, taking no Waze thing. in a pro applying it to a disaster response. Yeah, yeah which I'm sure people would have been only to. And that's what happened anyway, just yeah. in old school. I mean, it's like literally people were hearing from their friends and neighbors. They were calling one another, yep. you know, about how. So you're right. Well, that's interesting. Well, you're right. There, and, and that is, and it is a really good example of how, and I'm curious of what other things that you've seen um, or what kind of priorities are happening around just the modernization of government in general. You know, I, I, uh, I tell the story about when I got elected to my city council in 2008 in a Bay Area town, very sophisticated, you know, uh, nice town. And I walked in in 2008, walked up to the IT department with my phone. I said, hey, I've now got this new city council email. How do I get it on my phone? And they all kind of looked at each other and said, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get right back to you on that. I mean, you know, the, the way that – and obviously that's a little bit of a, of a funny example, but it's a real example, yep. right? And so I'm wondering kind of what you're seeing in trends out there. How much are things changing and how much appetite is there now uh, at the different state level to try to fundamentally change the way government operations are functioning and use technology? Sure. So I, I think there's two trends that are pushing us into um, government embracing, accepting, and deploying new technology. So one is the citizens are demanding it, right? If I can sit on my couch and go on Amazon or Walmart or Postmates or any of these services and get a product delivered in, in Postmates case, 40 minutes, in Amazon's case, 24 hours, I expect the same of government. I want to know how come, it how come I have to take a day off from work to go down to the DMV to renew my license. At the same time, you've got governors who want to lead on this issue, who want to be seen as innovators, who are kind of giving it the top-down push to say we've got to deploy more and more of this technology. In particular, a lot of governors coming in from the private sector where they're much more comfortable with this than state government or any, any public sector entity will be. What they're running up against, though, is what you just mentioned, legacy IT systems. Yeah. States, you know, budgets have been tight for a long, long time. And so how do you sort of take this new demand, take all this new technology and layer it on top of, in some cases, 10, 20, 30 year old IT architecture? That's ultimately what the tension is. So I think what it comes down to is prioritizing where can we use technology best in the most cost-effective way today and then figuring out how do we upgrade the architecture along the way. And yeah, and the challenge also is that where obviously the big difference between running a, a business and running a uh, running a public organization, you've got different motivations and you've got different uh, requirements and expectations. You know, in, in private business, you can take risk, yep. you can move a lot faster, you can break things, and that's you know that's kind of part of that ethic. Yeah, but, you know, governors and public officials have a lot more uh, accountability to their citizenry to, to make much more informed and frankly more conservative with a small c conservative decisions about 
how to institute these critical systems like we're talking about. If we're talking about fire uh, warnings or hurricane warnings, um, you know, you're not going to deal with startup companies with unproven technology, right? Yeah, and in some cases, you know, you've got to go back to your le- not in every case, you have to go back to your legislature and justify the expenditure. Right. Well, maybe you don't have a natural disaster for a few years, or maybe the use case doesn't arise. So now you've spent this money, and now you've got to justify spending it, and it may take a few years before the event that you were preparing for comes to town, and then you reap the benefits of that. And then in that case, you're also always trying to sort of prove, which becomes attenuated as time goes on, that oh, we saved lives, or we save money or we save time because we deployed this technology, sometimes that connection can be challenging. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that on the cost justification, but I'm also sort of drilling in on the point of, you know, is there enough internal knowledge and capacity within the folks that are running these IT departments that are doing these procurements and trying to plan out for these systems? You know, candidly, do they know enough to be able to look at the, the technology landscape out there as, as dynamic as it is and feel like they can make a sound set of decisions to create a roadmap for what kind of technology they should be deploying in their respective agencies and departments? Sure. You know, I think the folks who are managing the IT in the States, which is mainly the CIOs, they certainly are um, experts in their field and they are trying to stay on top of this. What they really need is that top level support from the governor, yeah. a governor's office that understands technology that can say, to them, you know, we want you to run fast and break things. We want you to kind of operate with more of a private sector, a little bit more appetite for risk. I think if you talk to most of the state CIOs out there, we work with a lot of them. They're a great group of people. They get technology. A lot of them have come from tech companies and now come back to the government and say they want to give back to their communities. But they need to have that cover from the governor and they need to make sure that they've got an executive branch who's willing to go to the legislature and say, yeah, hey, we told them to try something new. We told them that it was important to go mobile because that's where the citizens are. We told them that we wanted them to I was just reading this article about uh, putting apps on, you know, some of the home smart home devices. Some yeah. states are looking into that. So if you're sitting in your living room, you can go, you know, Alexa or Google Home. How do I renew my driver's license? And it's customized for you in that state. So it's a DMV app that says, oh, in California, you have to do these three or four things. You know, that's a different mindset for the public sector. And I think the only way that happens was with a governor and a governor's office that understands emerging tech, that's briefed on the upsides and the downsides, that sort of understands what the consequences of action or inaction are. That way they can go to the CIO and say, I've got your back. I understand these issues and I want you to deploy these things. Yeah, well, I, government better. I think it sounds great. I, I do, although I can imagine that's probably part of why your office exists is that we're going to have to communicate those things externally. Um, all of those folks are going to need some political cover. And I don't yep. use that in a uh, pejorative sense. I just no. think, you know, communicating with the citizenry and getting and, and helping them connect the dots between if you do want to start to have government services accessible to you and delivered to you in a way that is somewhat consistent with what you see in private sector, that then means that we are going to have to do some things inside of your government around decision making um, that, you know, is innovative and novel. And, and, you know, and that also means that it won't always work, right? Yep. I mean, let's just face it. I mean, that's just sort of a reality. And understanding the convenience security trade-off is so important too, right? And you've got to understand the technology to make that argument. But you may want to say to your citizens, there's some things you don't want to be able to do on your phone sitting in traffic. Maybe you don't want to be able to file taxes because that's some really important financial information that we, we're going to err on the side of security as opposed to convenience. So I think you have to be able to, you need governors to be informed on that debate and to be actively engaged on that. So that way when the citizens say, I want government to be faster, they can say, well, we are faster in these two or three areas, but we've made a concerted effort to be smarter 
to be more secure in these areas because we believe they need to be locked down. Yeah, I would think that. And you, you said you, I, I'm interested in you, you uh, the time you were working in cybersecurity. I, I, you know, that's obviously a critical thing when you're talking about exactly when you're yeah. talking about government related interactions uh, with the citizenry. You are talking about the most sensitive information that we have, right? Our, our our social security information, our financial information, our health information, our kids' education information, the things that are the most personal and private to us, the most secure data that, you know, that we care about. Um, what, what do you see out there in sort of the state of play of cybersecurity uh, concerns, but also kind of what's working on? I'm interested in just sort of what you experienced when you were working in that area. Yeah, no, so I worked in that area for about four years. The f- first half of it was focused really on raising awareness with governors, making sure they, they sort of recognize the security threats that state government face every day. And then once we sort of got that awareness ball rolling, beginning to help them think about some really basic steps. How can you get an organizational governance in place that takes a look at what do you have? What's most important? How can you protect it? What are the threats that you face? Begin to develop sort of a long-term strategy. And then, you know, the sad truth of this field is, some sort of intrusion is almost inevitable. So what does response begin to look like? And that's where I think a lot of states are really focused right now, is what am I going to do if I have Maybe it's as small as just a data breach, but what happens if a, if a whole segment of government's taken offline? How do I respond to that? Or what happens if it's a privately owned critical infrastructure? What's the role of government in response? How do states work together? How do state and locals work together? And then ultimately, how do states and the federal government work together? And a lot of these cybersecurity discussions, you know, they are so technology dependent. And that's yeah. why we spend so much time on that awareness piece, because you can't just jump to the policy. You've got to make sure everybody kind of understands the basics of what we're talking about here. Yeah. And we want these systems to get more automated, right? I mean, yeah. you know, the, uh, I, I've been a, a huge fan and proponent of smart cities or smart communities for such a long time with my background in mobile and, and, and in government. Uh, there are just so many areas, you know, transportation, energy, uh, water, you, you can go public safety, you go on and on and on about all of these public systems. Uh, and the, infra- the commensurate infrastructure, uh, to the extent that we can apply more technology to these things, automate these things, we could just make our communities work a lot better, yeah. obviously. But to your point, the more that you expose that stuff to technology, the more that you connect those online, you're creating vulnerabilities as well. That's why it's about a trade-off. One of the examples that we've talked about in the smart city, smart community space, I heard a great example around trash collection. So the amount of dollars that are, or time that cities waste going to every single trash receptacle, right. when a lot of them are empty, and then a bunch of the, and a small minority are overfilled. So the companies develop sensors that can tell the city, hey, these four are overfilled because we had an event here this weekend, but these ten are nowhere near filled, so don't hit that trash route. You can make the argument that with the exception of sort of, a, I guess, a botnet downside, having a trash can that tells the trash collector whether or not to be picked up, that seems to make a really good sense for connected to the internet for sending that data. When you're talking about maybe something a little more critical, like maybe in the corrections of the public safety space, maybe we want to be a little bit more careful about what we network because the immediate downside of having that vulnerable is a lot, a lot more high consequence than if it's a trash can or if it's, you know, um, I heard another great example and I think it was up in Rhode Island where they took all the traffic data around accidents mm-hmm. in the city of Providence and they were able to take all that, you know, incredibly large data set look through it for trends and really identify the times of day, the weather types, and the locations where accidents were most prevalent, and in some cases pre-position, or at least make the first responders in that immediate area more aware, because wow. they knew it was gonna happen. If oh, it rains yeah. at this intersection at rush hour, like we, we know there's gonna be an accident. So let's have an ambulance ready to go so we can get there, we can clear the scene, we can get any injured folks out to the, to the medical community as fast as possible and get traffic up and running again. No kidding. Although yeah. I trust that I'm sure they were also doing some pre- as much preemptive things as they could do to prevent those, yeah, those accidents in the first place too. 
of course. If you know right. you've got a dangerous intersection, yeah. we have the, traffic engineering. We have the data now to yeah. know that intersection is dangerous. Why is it dangerous? And let's remedy that as opposed to sort of just having a hunch, which is what we had to operate on years and years ago. Is what we, we think that intersection seems to be really dangerous. Now we can prove it with the data as long as the policymakers and sort of the public servants know that this is an environment, you know, they work in an environment that's conducive to tr- taking risks and deploying technology. Yeah. Boy, it does raise so many interesting uh, and, and challenging infrastructure questions, right, about the investment and the way. So it's not just investing in the IT infrastructure, uh, the back office IT infrastructure of a given agency, but, you know, I think about, tra- you think about transportation, right, that we're talking about. Um, to fully be able to plan for and anticipate uh, electrification of vehicles, automation of vehicles. I mean, just taking the transportation example for a moment, these are huge state and local policy decisions that will have to be made and huge investments that would be required to actually realize the vision of what certainly, we already know this stuff is here. Electric vehicles are here. Autonomous vehicles are basically here. I mean, there's, there's obviously ways to go, but um, it's not too far off before they're really fully deployable from a technology standpoint, but are we ready for them from a policy and infrastructure standpoint? No, I think we're not, right? And that has to be, that's part of what our mission is, is to try and make sure we're sharing information so that governors can make the best informed decision. You're right, we don't know what transportation is gonna look like to the T in 10 years. But we can look at the trends and we say, you know, it looks like we're gonna be moving towards more EVs, certainly more autonomous vehicles. So when we dig up a new road, when we put in new traffic lights, when we think about new data collection points, let's at least err on the side of where we think things are going. It's likely that we are, if we, you know, we're gonna overshoot or undershoot some perfect mark in the future, but we certainly wanna be better prepared as opposed to spending money today to build the roads or the infrastructure of yesterday and then having it be even further behind in 10 years. I think that ultimately becomes a financial argument and a fiscal argument, and you need to make sure you're working with the full range of information. You're hearing from the technologists who will tell you that autonomous vehicles are inevitable and will be here around the corner, and the naysayers who say it's gonna take a lot longer. The truth we know is somewhere in the middle, so let's take both sides of that, and then let's look at what it would cost to make those upgrades today versus what it would cost to build the old road and then dig it up or retrofit it in 10 or 15 years. And we know because we've had to retrofit that things in the past and then make an informed decision off of that. Certainly, I wouldn't recommend that uh, you know a governor put all their money into trying to build a highway that's coming online next year that's perfect for AVs because we don't know what that's going to look like. But if you're thinking about your 10-year infrastructure plan, you better be thinking about what autonomous transportation looks like for yeah, sure. Yeah, and a traffic management perspective. It's like, how do we then... How do we affect this transition uh, between beginning to integrate all this autonomy, autonomous vehicles yeah. into uh, just the general population of, 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 you know, of vehicle traffic? What are the rules, right? What do the stop signs look like? Yeah. What do the street lights look like? You know, all, all of those mechanical things that have, that have evolved over literally century, you know, well, decades and decades yeah. about our modern transportation. You know, the way streets are laid out in our cities, um, those are going to have to fundamentally change. And I think that's one of the issues I, I find so interesting about some of these transportation questions is it's not the sort of immediacy of today, which is the regulatory environment around testing, allowing the development of autonomous vehicles. It's the second and third order effects. That's what I find really fascinating. Yeah. You know, what's, how, is the, how is our network of roads going to look different? Right. How is it going to change the way where we live, how we live, what our commutes look like? How is it going to change real estate? I was listening to this, this great podcast discussion on sort of the future of real estate, yeah. in, especially out in California in a city like Los Angeles, which has so much infrastructure devoted to parking, well, what if you kind of think forward 25 years to fleet autonomous vehicles, we don't need parking structures everywhere. Right. How much space, even in in Washington, D.C., relatively dense downtown with a lot of suburban outer areas, 
a lot of ground is devoted to parking garages and garages. Well, if you already have such an expensive place to live, you're going to free up a lot of land in the next 20 years no to have to park a car everywhere. And what does that mean? You know, that those are kind of the issues that I think governors really need to start thinking about. And hopefully we're going to help prompt that discussion. Yeah, having been a city council member, it's always about parking. It yeah. always comes out that I've, you know, and I literally, last story on this and then I'll switch gears. But I was, I was talking to my Uber driver yesterday when I, and, and I was asking him what he does and he, and, and he works not only with Uber, uh, but he works uh, with Lyft. So the different rideshare companies, but he also works with, um, uh, Thumbtack and he works with some of the other, uh, on-demand delivery services. And, uh, and, and he was talking about how difficult it is to do his deliveries. Uh, Instacart is another one to do his deliveries in San Francisco. And I thought, you know, the city needs to think about, you've got to start designating parking areas that are specifically designated for rideshare pickup and delivery drop off. Like it should, because otherwise (laughs) this guy is doing all kinds of illegal and probably dangerous things, you know, not intentionally, but he's like, look, I got a delivery. I've got to make city council and, and city planners have got to start accommodating for that reality that that's where consumer demand is gone. I see it every single day. I wait for the bus. I take a city bus home every day, right around the corner at Union Station, our, our big train station. And <clears throat> if you request an Uber or a Lyft or a rideshare coming out of Union Station, one of the designated drop-off points is sitting in front of a bus stop. So every single day, especially around rush hour, it is this inevitable battle of the horns between the city bus <laughs> and what is always two or three cars backed up. Right. And if you, especially if you're not from this area, you go immediately come off your train and you call an Uber. Of it course. puts you at this bus stop. And it is just, I mean, the Uber drivers don't realize the buses are behind them. The bus driver's flipping out. Those of us at the bus stop are just trying to get up. It's really a, a total sort of, I don't want to call it a disaster, but it's yeah. just a, a, a it's conflict a mess. waiting yeah. to happen. And to your point, consumers are demanding it. Consumers want multimodal transportation. Of course. They want to know they can get rideshare. They want to know that these delivery services are going to work. And they want, we all want it to happen effectively, but also safely. We want yeah. these drivers to be able to operate safely. We want passengers to be safe. That's the biggest thing, no question. Well, let me switch gears on you a little yeah. bit and uh, talking about this. Uh, the thread of this guy that uh, was my Uber driver yesterday. And uh, so, of course, he's like now thousands and thousands of people uh, across the country that are participants in this, you know, so-called gig economy, right? He loves it. I ask, the, I ask my rideshare drivers all the time, how long have you been doing this? You know, do you do, are you forced to do this? Do you like doing it? And I have to tell you, my own, you know, uh, in, uh, informal and scientific survey is overwhelmingly, they say, I love it. I love the flexibility, I love the efficiency, I love the freedom that this type of work is bringing me. I, I, I can put together multiple gigs, I can drive full-time if I want, uh, I can go back to school, I can take care of my childcare when I need to. On and on and on, the benefits seem uh, very real. Um, but there's lots of consternation about the evolution of these new business models and what it means to the future of work. Uh, I have to believe this has just got to be top of mind with, with all of the governors as they think about what are the implications and what's the right policy responses to what's happening with the whole shape of our economy and the labor force out there. Yeah, I think the future of the work, especially around the gig economy, is such a great example of the pace of change. These were not issues that we were talking about right. seven years ago or even five years ago at the same level. You know, the, our whole system of labor market is built around a set you know, amount of benefits, about taxation, about compensation, that all assumes you have one primary job, maybe you have a secondary job that goes along with that, but it's with 
an organization that's either a corporation or, or you know a nonprofit or you work for the public sector, you go there from nine to five, you get your compensation, you get some sort of benefits from them, your vacation time is from them, the government knows you work there. It's totally different if you wake up, you do a little Uber in the morning, then you're Instacart for a couple hours in the afternoon, on Saturdays you're a task rabbit. So we really have to ask some, I think, fundamental questions about how do we, do we need to change our taxation system? Do we need to change our benefit system? How do we worry about just worker welfare, right? We've got huge elements of the government that whole focus is making sure the workplace is safe, right. that people don't get hurt on the job, that there's certain safety standards in place. These are a lot similar to questions that the federal government was tackling at the turn of the last century around factories, right? We have to begin to have these questions anew with the gig economy. What's yeah, it really the- is that size of a shift, right? I mean, this is yeah. this is the fourth industrial revolution in human history, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a this is a very, very big set of changes and challenges. And you're right, all of that legacy set of regulations and policies and systems that we've put in place that have been organized around a certain type of, of, of employer employment model, that's now comp- being completely shaken up. And how do we make sure too that you know we've got an economy that's available to everybody? So it's not people, right. people aren't being forced into the gig economy because there aren't jobs outside of it. Understanding there, I agree with you, my informal poll, whenever I use a TaskRabbit or order Postmates or use Instacart or any of that, every time I talk to this, I really like this. It gives me flexibility, all the things you said. But how do we make sure it's not, well, I have to do Uber because I can't find another job or I have to deliver groceries. So it's got to be an economy that's open for everybody. And I think we also have to have, when we're thinking about some of the downsides or some of the the sort of disruptive changes, let's also have a discussion about all the downstream benefits, right? How much money or how much increase in business is happening to the companies that are having their goods delivered on some of these delivery services. There's right? no question about that. You think and that it is a great question. I mean, you think about what uh, these these platforms create on the individual side. They create a platform for me as an individual to work uh, through a very vibrant, uh, you know, uh, service, and so it, it gives me that employment opportunity. But to your point, if I'm a baker or I'm an artist or I, I'm an accountant, all of a sudden I've got the entire world is available to me to market my services via these platforms. Whereas five years ago, that was, you know, that that was a, a dream, but not not realistic. Yeah, I've seen it in my own home. My wife is a, is an amateur artist, and a couple years ago, if she really wanted to pursue her art career, she'd have to you know, pursue her art or become an artist and sort of, I guess, use Craigslist to try and find clients. And she was able to use, I'm forgetting the exact platform, but she uploads designs. She now owns those designs and the company will put them on mugs, sweatshirts, pillows. And she ends up, you know, it's not sort of, it's certainly not a career, but it's definitely a little extra revenue because sure. people go on that, well, that's a cute design. I'd like to order 20 mugs with that. And she gets a piece of it. That's a platform that wasn't there before. And, you know, I think you think about how it changes our society. I see it every day here where I live in Washington, D.C., where whole neighborhoods that are opened up because rideshare is now an option. People right. can live there where there didn't used to be metro or where there didn't used to be a bus or where there isn't a parking structure. And it changes the way we sort of what we look to government to provide versus the private sector to provide. I think it's a it's a huge question because. You know, as we all worry about the state of the economy, how it's growing, the, the, the labor market, and, and you know, certainly in California, which as you know, is massive and very diverse in terms of its conditions, you couldn't have a more explosive, vibrant economy that we have in the Silicon Valley or in the Silicon Beach in Southern California or San Diego. Our, our technology hubs are, uh, are doing incredibly well. But in California, we have massive swaths of land, areas of California that are rural, traditional industry, traditional agriculture, manufacturing, etc. Millions of Californians that honestly are not participating in the 
you know, in the explosive positive growth that we've seen in technology. In California, I think, I'm sure it's just a microcosm of what we see across the country. So your point that all of a sudden technology can start extending new economic opportunities into areas that until recently have been shut out of participating in the economy, that's a very exciting possibility. Yeah, I, I think it's it's super exciting, especially for governors. I mean, you think about let's just look at let's sort of look at the western half of the country. I mean, I can't tell you how frequently they open the newspaper, look at the Wall Street Journal, and they talk about the new tech hubs that are in Salt Lake City, that are in Las Vegas, that are in Phoenix, that are in Boise, Idaho, that are in Denver. Part of that is economics, right? New startups being priced out of Silicon Valley. But the reality is there's also a lot of connectivity that didn't exist a generation ago. So there's certainly an ecosystem in Silicon Valley or Austin or Boston or New York that I maybe that I maybe need to be plugged into at some point. But once my company grows to a certain size or if I'm just thinking about becoming a new startup, if I can access the internet, I can start a business. And if I don't want to start a business, I can play a role in that business. Right. The key is you got to make sure, obviously, that there's internet access and you got to make sure that you've got a workforce who's being trained in sort of the skills of tomorrow. And that becomes really You're challenging. anticipating my question, which is, so let's drill into those for yeah. just a minute uh, while we just have a couple minutes left. And that is, um, so what, it, what are those, uh, those building blocks of participation and, and success in this technology economy? What, need, what are the conditions that are required, right? And for people to be able to avail themselves of what's going on out there. The, the first one you said is connectivity. If you don't have connectivity, then, then you're disconnected and you're not there. Yeah, and that's a large scale you know, infrastructure challenge. There's a lot of really smart uh, companies and people working on that. I think the key to solving that um, is going to be cooperation between the public sector at the go- at the federal and state level and the local level and certainly the private sector. A lot of interesting work being done on how do we p- broaden connectivity, how to make sure anybody who has a mobile phone can get on the internet. So I, I, I watch that field anxiously. I think there's going to be a lot of development. I think the second piece you talked about is on sort of the skill set. So now that, let's assume you can get connected to the internet. Right. This is a much harder question because we don't know necessarily what the job of 10 or 20 years are going to be. You know, If you've got a child in kindergarten, we don't know Oh, do they have to have a cybersecurity degree or right. a computer science degree? Coding, do they have to learn coding? Yeah. So what we do know is though that certain things are really important, right? Critical thinking skills are really important. Being able to communicate are really important. But I think the third one that, that you know I read a lot about is just we need to make sure we're educating students to work in a world in which they're gonna be working hand in glove with a computer of some kind. They may not necessarily need to know how to code that computer, but they have to be comfortable working with technology that's gonna enable them to do more, to be more productive in a way that you know, we see it every day, right? We work with phones and computers. I think in a generation it's gonna be even more. You know, it's not so much a future where the robot takes your job that kind of keeps me up at night. It's where the robot enables your job and you're working hand in hand with them. And how do you prepare that workforce for that sort of, I think, immediate future? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the technology companies, many play a constructive role. I think most need to play, in my view, uh, a constructive role in helping to bring forward some of those, uh, what they're learning about the skill sets, the aptitudes, the attributes of people that they're looking for as they're developing these new occupations or ways of plugging into the way the economy works. And, and, and I think we all have a role in trying to create stronger connectivity between that knowledge and how our education and workforce systems work. I mean, if there's one thing that I've seen throughout my career, and we're working very actively in this in California with say our, our community college system, for instance, that's doing a fantastic job of specifically creating initiatives that, that create these engagements between industry and education and be much more intentional, much more purposeful and have durable systems that can allow us to make those education programs and curriculum more relevant and contemporary because that's another area where the gap is just too big. 
I, I think two sort of final thoughts on that future of work issue, which I could talk about for days and days, right? It's one, future of work has to be a real public-private partnership. The folks who are developing these new technologies, they've got a front row seat to what the jobs of the future are going to look like. We don't know, economists and academia don't really know. It's the people who are innovating every day in these technology companies, in these small new startups. They know what the jobs of the future look like because they're building them today. They've got to be having a dialogue with people who are designing our educational systems, who are running our universities and running our schools to say, this is what we think the job of the future looks like. These are the skills that have to match it. The second piece that the public sector plays is we've got to, we have to stop thinking about education as being a K through 12 or a K through college. It's got to be lifelong learning, right? The technology changes so quickly, careers change so quickly. We've got to be open to the fact that we may have to, you know, offer people an opportunity to retrain for a new set of skills, offer people an opportunity mid-career to go back and learn a little bit more about something that they didn't know they were gonna do. The idea that you can graduate, you're gonna graduate college at 22 and be able to anticipate every turn of your career for the next 35 years. Right. I think that's a relatively antiquated idea. People are gonna need to go back and learn more all along the way and transition to adapt to the new world. Well, listen, that's a complicated issue. And I think the things that we've run through in the last uh, half hour or so have been, uh, there's a lot that's on tap, a lot that needs to happen at the federal, state, and local level to make this stuff work and uh, to usher in this new era of success and prosperity and make it work for a lot of people. So Tim Blute, director of NGA Future, thanks a lot for joining us on A Step Ahead. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Kish. This has been great.